Amen. Amen. So these words, verses 1 through 5 here, uh, these words to the disciples proceed from Jesus' previous encounter with the Pharisees. If you guys can remember back more than a few chapters now, Jesus has been directing the majority of what he's been saying at the Pharisees, also with an eye toward teaching his disciples. So that's what's going on here. And essentially these words, so he has already warned them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And this instruction is very much in the same vein. Self-righteousness is the problem, but particularly so because the destruction it causes within the community of faith. So, self-righteousness is the issue at hand, but not self-righteousness in general, but because of the effects it has upon the community. It is the quintessential me-first attitude that ruptures otherwise peaceful communities. And so Jesus warns his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. Undoubtedly, this is said with an eye toward the Pharisees. They had become stumbling blocks to the people, tearing down their faith rather than building it up. It's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew's gospel. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So rather than removing stumbling blocks from their path, the Pharisees had set themselves up as one. Many had tripped and fell due to their testimony, and some never got up. And thus the community of faith suffers. The leaders rule in unrighteousness, and the people's love grows cold. And we don't lack examples of this. Institutions and churches and private ministries imploding due to a leadership scandal. And of course, the opposite still more devastating side of the equation is also present. The Pharisees' own unforgiveness. They demanded the strictest obedience to the law while excusing themselves from keeping it at all. Jesus blasts them, Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are um, unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. So enforcing these heavy burdens on people's shoulders, but themselves absolutely excluding themselves. So in direct contradiction uh, to their severity, Jesus counsels that his disciples must be prepared to relieve burdens, not enforce them. If he sins against you seven times a day, and he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The Pharisees' actions had eroded the fabric of the community, weakening the people and cheapening their faith until they could extract from them all that they wanted. And so against this backdrop, the devastation the Pharisees had brought upon the community, Jesus issues this instruction. And it is quite simply instruction about how to foster and maintain healthy community life. Stumbling blocks will come, he says. 
Therefore, be on guard. Be on guard that you don't become a stumbling block and that you don't stumble others. It's about how to live peacefully and in harmony with one another. So, Jesus' central teaching comes in the center of the warning. Be on guard, or be on your guard, he says. It forms the link, the link between the two subjects, not being an offense and not taking offense. It is inevitable, Jesus says, that stumbling blocks come. Therefore, be on your guard. And be on your guard because your brother will sin against you. It is just as inevitable. Being on guard, therefore, is the central thing. It is what facilitates the other things. Forming a habit of mind where they are possible. So turn the teaching inside out. The logical conclusion is that if one isn't on guard, not paying attention to themselves and their surroundings, they will inevitably become a stumbling block and will stumble over others. Being on guard, then, is the catalyst of the teaching. It is what ties everything together. But what does it mean to be on your guard? At the risk of stating the obvious, a certain attentiveness and awareness is involved. It comes from the Greek word prosecco, not the wine, which means to be on alert and to consider carefully. And it's translated variously as beware or pay attention or even as addicted. For this reason, other translations, I think, render it better when they say, pay attention to yourself or take heed to yourself. And so this, a personal alertness and understanding, however, is nothing new. But this is long-established wisdom in the book of Proverbs. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way. But the foolishness of fools is deceit, Solomon says. And the way of the wicked is darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They do not know over what they stumble. So a wise man... One endued with good sense understands his way. He recognizes his own propensities and habits. In other words, he recognizes and understands the way he takes. And a foolish man, needless to say, lacks even the most basic self-awareness. He stumbles and knows not over what. This past weekend, I was talking to my father-in-law about, of all things, how to avoid being bit by a rattlesnake while hiking. I don't know how we came onto that topic, but he shared some personal advice. He never steps over or on an obstacle without a brief inspection first. That's wisdom. The wise man understands the way he takes. He's careful about his steps. The fool doesn't, and therefore he earns himself an airlifted trip to the hospital. So to pay attention and to take heed to oneself is really the most basic principle of wisdom. Yet, it's not the most practiced thing. Indeed, as I've said in sermons past, there is a deep stupidity that's rooted in human nature. 
King Solomon says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And I'm inclined to think that it never comes out. But to be a tad bit more gracious, it's hard for a particular reason. It's ourselves that we are attempting to understand. Take heed to yourself. It's always easier, is it not, to judge and assess another person's life rather than our own. Everything is so clean cut to our disinterested eyes. Right and wrong speak for themselves. It's as clear as day, and you wonder how that person couldn't possibly recognize and see what you see. Yet those same faculties of judgment, when they are turned inward, it seems the moment they are, things begin to short-circuit. Our wisdom and sagacity evaporate. Right and wrong are jumbled into one big mess, and we can't seem to make sense of the way to go. I've often wondered myself, why I'm not able to observe the wisdom that I so easily and readily dispense to others. I've got solutions at hand for their problems, but my own, it seems that I can't figure things out. And so what is the root of this profound senselessness bound up in the human heart? Well, Solomon has already told us, the foolishness of fools is deceit. The heart is insane because it feeds on lies. In other words, it operates according to a false and faulty view of reality, one that it's cooked up in its own imagination. And so it seems, at least in some respect, that Jesus' command to take heed to yourself involves reckoning with the truth about ourselves. The heart constructs its alternate realities, rooted in deception and untruth, And essential to avoiding disaster is living wisely. Most importantly, being truthful with ourselves. And the Apostle Paul says as much. Romans chapter 12 verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of, of faith. So, as opposed to an overly generous, entirely too lenient self-assessment, the Apostle Paul recommends that we practice sound judgment. Some versions translate sound judgment as to think soberly. That, I think, captures the sense well. Don't be intoxicated with yourself. Drunk in your thoughts about yourself. Rather, think soberly, as accords with reality. Take heed to yourself. But, to boil this down to its most basic element, it's a matter of humility. Pride comes, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Humility promotes self-understanding. Self-understanding promotes wisdom, wisdom promotes righteousness, and righteousness promotes peaceful community. When I understand myself, when I'm humble, and therefore when I'm walking wisely, I'm walking righteously, when I'm walking righteously, I'm living at peace with my brothers and sisters. But the opposite is also true, when I'm not taking heed to myself, and therefore when I am not living wisely and not living righteously, conflict 
is inevitable. The community begins to rupture because of my activity. Bernard of Clairvaux, a medieval theologian, says thus, speaking of humility, it is the virtue which enables man to see himself in his true colors and thereby discover his worthlessness. There's a little medieval piety for you. Bernard's words are are quite strong, especially for self-esteem addicts like us, but they are true nonetheless. If able, by the clear side of humility, to assess ourselves according to reality, the way things really are, our self-image will inevitably be deflated. But, and, and, and here's the thing, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Might it be that with a more accurate view of ourselves, quite possibly a more pessimistic view of ourselves, our self-esteem will actually rise? Could it be that we're such self-loathing people because we think so much of ourselves? We regard, regard ourselves more highly than we ought to. Regardless, Jesus' intention is that we'd learn wisdom and take heed to ourselves. But... This wisdom proceeds from a particular source. Again, he says, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Those words set the tone for everything that follows. Why are we we to put attention to ourselves? Why do the scriptures constantly recommend that we take heed over our lives? That we're careful about um, our, our own internal dispositions and attitudes. Why? Because, quite simply, sin. It is an inescapable fact of life. I will sin, and I will be sinned against. Therefore, I must be prepared. I must be on my guard. The reality that we inhabit is not neutral. Things tend toward disorder, not order. And worse still, so do our hearts. They come preloaded with great destructive capabilities. Watch over your heart with all diligence, Solomon says to his son, for from it flow the springs of life. And, it, and they are muddy springs, I might add. So it's clear, hopefully, the reason Jesus' warning is as stern as it is. Be on your guard. I remember the first time I was pulled over, the police officer, it wasn't Greg Jones, relentlessly (laughs) lectured me about my driving, and rightfully so. Needless to say, I didn't appreciate it at the time. However, I do remember one thing he told me. You are behind the wheel of a two-ton killing machine. The hope was that the hardened criminal before him (laughs) would recognize the destructive capabilities at his fingertips, that I would recognize the power of the machine. And the same counsel stands for any semi-dangerous tool, whether you're operating a circular saw or a nail gun or an Instapot. It's quite... (laughs) They're dangerous. It's quite foolish. It's quite foolish to approach those items with a lack of respect. If one fails to recognize the inherent danger in operating them, pain won't be far behind. 
And so it seems that Jesus' warning to us is something like this. Pay attention to yourself. Don't you understand what you carry with you? A heart. The most destructive thing on the face of the earth. It's also the most precious thing on the face of the earth, but that's not what we're talking about. So there is, therefore, a certain respect that one must have for their sinful potential to always be on guard against it, right? It's so dangerous and foolish to be unaware of our potential, the destructive capacity that is within us. It is the inevitability of sin that despite our most sincere intentions, that it cannot be avoided, that is supposed to temper our self-image and paradoxically aid us in righteousness. It's as if the knowledge of one's sin is a sharp pin that Christ puts in our hands, that we might prick our ego when it becomes dangerously inflated. I begin to feel my feet lifting from the ground, my head becoming full of pride. And at that moment, the Lord puts the pin of my past sin in my hand and reminds me, go ahead and prick it and bring yourself back to reality. And so here's what I'm saying. Necessary is the practice of remembering one's sin. Necessary is the practice of remembering one's sin. Now that seems counterintuitive, but there's good wisdom in it. Keeping in mind one's past failures and not utterly erasing them from memory tempers one's innate disposition to pride. It keeps me from becoming prideful and then stop trusting in the Lord and then getting and falling into sin. And so remembering what I'm capable of, remembering that at any moment I'm liable just to go way off course, that keeps me in this position of humility and dependence. I need to remember that. And when I don't remember that, I necessarily get into trouble. And so human nature hasn't changed. St. Basil preaching about this, he preached about this very thing 1,500 years ago. He said, yet you, because honor is accorded to you, exalt yourself and find occasion for pride in the mercy that is granted to you. His counsel, know yourself at length. For you are Adam expelled from paradise, Saul abandoned by the Spirit of God, Israel cut off from the sacred root. But thou standest by faith, says the apostle, be not high-minded, but fear. Now I suspect they were a bit more sturdy than us, given the tone of Basil's words, yet he speaks the truth. The moment things begin to go well, it goes straight to our heads. We begin to accord it, as Basil says, we find occasion for pride in the mercy that is granted to us. Thus, the only way to protect ourselves from exalting ourselves is to know ourselves at length. That apart from the Lord, we truly are Adam expelled from paradise, Saul abandoned by the Spirit of God, Israel cut off from the sacred root. Whom have I in heaven but you? What good do I have besides you? Remembering the capacity of sinful nature. But allow me to clarify. This is very liable to be misunderstood. I, I, I fully understand that. What I don't mean here is this to be a means of self-flagellation and condemnation. 
imagined here is not a person continually tormented by their past sins, loathing themselves and unable to accept forgiveness. By no means. That is not the picture in mind. It isn't intended to stir up condemnation, but humility. It is possible to remember one's sins without torment, covered in forgiveness, yet as a means to greater dependence. And so it's not about berating myself, but rather simply being aware of my fragility and my utter helplessness apart from grace. You see the difference there? Those aren't the same thing. And so there is a certain security in God's mercy and love that enables us to enact this searching self-inventory. Right, I don't, I don't know how much this comes into our minds, but God knows the truth about us far more than we know the truth about ourselves. My sin, I know this much of it. The Lord knows the full depth. He sees it in its true ugliness for all that it is. And, and yet, He still loves me. He still accepts me. And that security, right, he knows me better than I know myself, yet loves me better than I love myself. That security enables me to judge myself truly, right? There's, there's, I, don't, I don't have to be afraid because if I uncover the truth, the Lord's not going to accept me. He already knows it. I just need to discover it. There's a pastor who describes the gospel this way. He says that, um, this just came to mind, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up, but he says, um, the gospel is that you're more sinful than you ever imagined, but more loved than you ever dared hope, right? It's, it's, it's that. You're, it's worse than you imagined. The Lord knows the truth, but he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And therefore, it enables me. Without all the baggage of uh, my self-image, all these other things, I'm loved. I'm secure. I'm taken care of. But now I can actually judge truthfully. I can look into my heart and say, okay, Lord, I, I see what you see. I see what you see, and I can accept it. So, a truthful self-understanding, right? recognizing that apart from the Lord, I am Saul, cut off from the Spirit. A true understanding, a self-understanding, is only instrumental, right? It's not an end in itself. Although it is intensely personal, and for our individual growth, it's more proper, properly about living in harmonious community. Personal humility, in other words, is for the sake of loving my neighbor well. Consider that without humility, a proper self-understanding, our common life as a church is likely to implode. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. We are sinners. We will sin against one another. And if we are not in this place of humility, of taking heed unto ourselves, when those stumbling blocks come, they will tear down our community. They will undermine people's faith. We are very good about hiding our faults from ourselves and equally skilled at identifying them in others. And if those tendencies go unchecked and unbridled, it won't be long before our church ceases to exist. The flesh destroys. Think Galatians 5. The church at Galatia was very much a church with internal problems. So Paul concludes his letter by talking about the flesh and the spirit. What are the works of the flesh? 
They are things that destroy community. Dissensions, backbiting, uh, outbursts of anger, wrath. All these things that Paul lists. The flesh destroys and and, and it, it, uh, it, it, it ruins peace. But the Spirit enables those things. The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, patience, gentleness, self-control, so on and so forth. These things enable our life. So humility is essential for our community's proper functioning. It enables us to handle conflict and quarrel, disagreement and opposition without them devouring us. It's going to happen. We're going to get into trouble with one another, and therefore we need humility. And the most immediate effect of this accurate self-estimation Um, that it has, is to soften us, um, to soften a person in relation to their brother's sin. Take heed to yourself, Jesus says, because your brother will sin against you. And when he does, you must be prepared to forgive him and to forgive him again and again and again, seven times a day. That is, quite obviously, an incredible demand. And it leaves the disciples despairing of their ability. Increase our faith, they say. Once or twice, that seems reasonable. That seems within, you know, kind of common sense. But to forgive someone seven times a day for the same thing is outrageous. And indeed it is. That is, until we remember our own weakness the sin that lies within our capability. In my brother, the one returning to me in repentance, I am to see a picture of myself. His shame, his guilt, his torment, not even wanting to look me in the eyes for the seventh time coming and saying, I repent. When he comes to me, I'm to see myself. The same mercy that he seeks from me is the same mercy I constantly seek from the Lord. And so a true self-image, considering who I am, it makes me compassionate and gentle with my brother. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it does help. Now, Peter is the quintessential example of this dynamic at work. Prior to his denial, there was hardly a more self-assured person than Peter. And it showed. And really, it wasn't him alone, but the rest of the disciples with him. Constantly, they fought over their greatness. Who deserved the most honor? And if it weren't Jesus, for Jesus, they would have devoured one another. And so Peter, the night of Jesus' crucifixion, throws the disciples under the bus, proclaiming, even though all may fall away because of you, I never will. Now, two things are present in Peter's voice. A sincere love for Jesus. Of course, we're not doubting that, but also a competition. Though all may fall away, namely these other disciple bums, I will never. There's a superiority about it, a desire to distinguish himself from the pack. And it's the same principle that inspired the Pharisees. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, tax collectors. And that innate pride, the desire to stand above others, naturally breeds a condemning and severe attitude. I see in their failure, not a picture of myself, because I'm not a failure, 
but, my, but I see contemptible weakness. Just get it together, I might say to them. Stop being an idiot. Why can't you figure this out? I see weakness in them. I see something not worthy of compassion. But that's only because I don't know myself. And so though Peter exalted himself against his brothers, he came crashing down. That night he denied the Lord three times. And the greatness of his fall was in proportion to the magnitude of his self-conceit. But through his fall, Peter learned humility. As Jesus said he would. Luke chapter 22 Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like weeds, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter discovered his weakness, whereas before he looked down upon others, tempted to despise their ineptitude. Now he's indulgent to them, able to strengthen them, for he has learned that he is no different from them. That is himself. There's a story, and I've shared it with you before, about an old monk named Moses. A certain brother in the church had committed some great sin. And so everyone called a council together, and they invited Moses. But Moses refused to go. So the leader of the council sent someone uh, to go summon Moses. And he says, we're all waiting for you. And so Moses set out, but he got a leaky jug, and he filled it with water, and he took it behind him. And when he arrived, the people came out to meet him and said, what is this, Moses? And the old man said to them, my sins run out behind me, and I cannot see them. Yet here I am coming to sit in judgment on the mistakes of somebody else. And as the story goes, when they heard this, they called off the meeting. And I think that is the kind of thing that Jesus' words encourage intimately and painfully acquainted with my own weakness. My heart is softened toward my sinning brother. Forgiving them might still be difficult, and indeed it is, but I can bring myself to mercy in consideration of myself. And this, in turn, edifies the community, and it keeps it intact. It can survive real sin, not merely faults and mistakes, when each person approaches the other knowing themselves intimately. You see how we're supposed to know ourselves that we might love our neighbor. Forgiveness, almost more than anything else, is what sustains relationships, friendships, and communities. And forgiveness is only possible apart from self-righteousness and abiding in sincere humility. Right? When we can do those things, we can figure this out. We can get along. And I'm often not too worried about dust-ups that happen in the church because they provoke this. It would be much better for us to have real conflict and to get over it than to have imagined conflict, small little things, and just kind of, hey, let's just get along. That's not real community. So it's not the worst thing when these things happen because it leads us to growth, to true love for one another. Now, the other quite practical end that an accurate self-estimation serves is to promote prudence. Understanding the ugly truth about ourselves, even expecting the worst from ourselves, has the paradoxical effect of endanger, uh, engendering a, a, a carefulness about the way that we take. It creates a foresight necessary to avoid a stumbling block or stumbling 
over one, to avoid becoming a stumbling block, rather, um, or stumbling over one. As it pertains to myself, I understand my propensities and my weaknesses. That if I put myself in this situation, I'm likely to do this. That if I expose myself to that influence, I'm, uh, it's likely to lead to this result. Thus endowed with prudence, the ability to sense danger on the horizon, I can shelter myself from sin and ultimately from becoming a stumbling block to others. Proverbs 2.22.3, the prudent sees evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished. Now that this pertains to sin is beyond question. Justifiably, sin causes others to stumble, but it pertains to lesser matters as well. I think particularly about the Apostle Paul's words to the Romans and the Corinthians. God has given us liberty in Christ. There are certain matters indeed important matters that believers may take different stands on. In that time, the Apostle Paul's, it centered around food that was sacrificed to idols and privileging certain days above others. And in our day, it might be matters of politics or things about the virus or whatever current issue. Oftentimes, there are a legitimate range of options that might be held by equally faithful and equally orthodox Christians. And where God has granted liberty, not dictating a specific position, we must be prepared to let our brothers and sisters walk in that liberty without hindering them. Speaking to the Romans, the Apostle Paul concludes, Romans 14.3, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather to determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Not to judge them, but to edify them, to build up their faith. Now, that doesn't preclude healthy debate and conversation, the attempt to refine our opinions to adhere to the gospel as closely as possible. Far from being suppressed, such dialogue should be encouraged because it's only in such dialogue that we come to the truth. So we need that. What I'm talking about here is not some sort of soft postmodern, let's just get along, everyone to each his own, let's not worry about it. These conversations should happen. We should try to be as close as possible to the will of God as we can. Yet, that, doesn't, that does preclude us from enforcing our opinions on others when an agreement cannot be reached. My brother and sisters can have their opinion, though I disagree and sometimes vehemently. I, however, must resolve myself not to be a stumbling block to them or to upset their faith in any way. And again, this is a matter of prudence, of taking heed to oneself. To the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I may have liberty where another does not. And precisely because of that, I am to be all the more mindful about my actions and how I present myself. What is not an offense to my conscience may be, and oftentimes is, an offense to another's conscience. The Apostle Paul, therefore, puts a greater responsibility on those with a greater freedom. If God has granted to you a freedom 
that others do not possess, you are responsible for that liberty and how you employ it. And besides, the point is not liberty for liberty's sake, but love. And thus all our actions should be tailored toward that end. And this is what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 15 verses, 14, verses 15 and 19. If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking in love, so then pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Liberty is good. We can have our opinions about all these important issues. That's fine. But it's not given to us, this liberty, as an end in itself. We are not saved that we might press our opinions on our brothers and sisters, but that we might love them. Thus, the moment my personal conviction becomes an offense, I've ceased to walk in love and myself have sinned. The only solution is to take heed unto myself, to consider well my actions and the effect that they have upon my brothers and sisters. It may be inadvertent. It may not even be on purpose. Yet, it's my responsibility to watch over your faith. It's all our responsibility. Thus, putting attention to one's actions and words, particularly how they affect others, sustains our common life. Aiming my conduct, deliberately ordering it toward my neighbor's good, and not my own personal expression, not my own opinions, but toward my neighbor's good, contributes to building a stable and peaceful community. Rather than being a stumbling block to someone else, tearing down the Lord's work, I'm a building block, contributing to and reinforcing the Lord's work in their life. And so that's my aim, right? My aim is your good. Your aim is my good. We're to think with our brothers and sisters in mind, how can I edify? How can I build up? And so our action is to be ordered in that direction toward good and not harm because the Lord's action is eternally ordered in that direction. The Apostle Paul draws this line of application at the end of his discussion. He says, Romans 15, verses 2 and 3, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. That's what we've been saying. My responsibility is for you. Your responsibility is for me, for our mutual edification. And then he roots it. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So look to Jesus. Picture Christ's other-centered benevolent action. That forms the basis of our action. As he was to us, utterly and tenderly concerned for our good, like a mother is for her own children, we are to be for one another. I am my brother's keeper, but I am not Christ. Therefore, I need to take heed to myself that I avoid those destructive tendencies so prone to my nature. And if contrary to my nature, but proper to grace, I'm able to act for your good, then I've become like Christ to the pleasure of God. And if to the pleasure of God, then I fulfill the purpose for which I walk the earth and for which we all walk the earth. Let's pray.